0: Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, just as uh, Fletcher sitting there safe in his father's embrace, Lord, teach us to do that. Take us deeper tonight into the amazing affection you have for every single person in this room. Everybody watching online, Lord, help us understand in a greater way. how deep the Father's love is for us. May we know it deeper than we've ever known it before. Come, Holy Spirit, in this moment, fall afresh on us. Show us once again your incredible love, what it means just to be at peace with God. This Father's Day weekend, Heavenly Father, let us all take fresh steps in our commitment with you, in our intimacy with you, in our fellowship with you. Lord, teach us, we pray this. Thank you that you see so much value in us, oh God, you are going to prepare a place for us, for those that love you and long for your appearing may we be found faithful we ask it in jesus name amen amen well welcome and thank you for joining us tonight and for all those who are joining us online as well we welcome you it's a wonderful thing to have people the room and actually be uh, relating to real human beings over these last couple of weekends. Now tell me as a new Queenslander, is this humidity that's just gone bang? Is that just something that happens at the start of spring or what? I'm sitting there sweating it out and I haven't even got up here tonight. Wow, it's uh, feeling a little different to what I'm used to. But for those of you who are joining us outside the Brisbane area, we welcome you. Uh, let us know you're with us through a photo or a comment in one of our uh, networks. We would love to welcome you into our church family. We're really excited with this new series. It's called Return, and we're focusing not only on the return into the physical building here in Brisbane, but the return of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. It's the greatest return of all. It's a great Christian hope that we have that, that our Lord is coming not to turn the world upside down because it's already upside down. He's going to come to turn it all back up the right way, the way it was supposed to be. And throughout these coming weeks, we're doing a deep dive into the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a, The reason we're going there is because this is really the epicenter of New Testament material on eschatology, on the end times. It's more here than anywhere. And... Uh, it, this is a church, uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, that's obsessed with the second coming of Christ. In fact, it's just five chapters long, but every single chapter ends with reference to the coming of Christ in this book. Now, just before we jump into our reading tonight, I want to return you to the big ideas that we covered last weekend in our intro. So, here's some big ideas in the wider New Testament about what we know about eschatology. The what. Is very certain. The when is anything but certain. We don't know the detail of when Jesus comes again. So the minute somebody says to you, February the 16th, 2022, you can write that person off as a lunatic, right? Because nobody knows the day or the hour. None of us have a clue about the when, we only know the what. Early believers live with a sense of urgency. This is easily spotted from a New Testament perspective. In fact, we said last week that those who were writing our New Testament were convinced that this return was going to happen in their lifetime. They thought they were going to see it with their own eyes. They were convinced it was coming that soon. It, therefore, it dramatically affected their lives. We talked about their views on marriage. And family and possessions, owning a home and all those things which we think of now as normal to everyday Australian life actually lost their appeal to them in light of this great return of Jesus and they, grew, they uh, drew ongoing encouragement from the thought of return. That Jesus was coming again was not a guilt-provoking experience for them, It was. A, it was a It was a message of encouragement that they received and greatly anticipated. Now, we said last week about the church at Thessalonica, Paul was only there... um for three weekends in the temple before he got ran out of town and he had to literally flee for his life. Now, was he there more than three weeks? We're not too sure. He might've conducted some, some private meetings in homes. That's possible. But what, however long he was there, he was there definitely for a very, very short time. His, his, his time there was cut short and he is worried sick About how this church is traveling because he knows they've come under severe persecution. And so he sends Timothy, he's offsider to say, go and check on how they're going. And Timothy comes back and says, they're not just surviving, they're thriving. They're going incredibly well. And this is the reason why, because they had returned so high in their worldview, they could persevere through really deep trials. And we said three qualities produced by return. that we touched on last week, faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope. We said if you're low on those, it's because you're low on the return of Christ in your thinking, in your mindset, in your worldview. If you're high on those, it's most likely because you've got a high view of the return of Christ in your mindset. So we're skipping along now to verse 4 through to the end of the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, reading from verse 4 where we left off last week. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. That one verse could rock your world. He really took hold of it. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And we know of your concern for what for sorry, I'll start again. We know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you've become an example to all the believers in Greece, throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Why the diverse reactions? Have you ever wondered why two people can seemingly be going through a similar experience and have vastly different responses to that experience? For one person, it makes them bitter. For the other person, it makes them better. How does that work? How does the same thing make one person bitter and the other person better. How for one person does that experience of hardship kind of finish their faith, and yet for the other person they go on flourishing in faith with the exact same experience? I don't kind of get it. Many times over the years of working with people I've been surprised. People are forever surprising. Before working with people in a pastoral role, I was in retail management, that was far easier to predict outcomes when you're working with figures and money, but people they're forever surprising. you just never know where they're going to jump next. Some people seem to make an art out of turning a you know an anthill into a mountain and others just seem to cruise on even through the hardest of times. You know there's some serious things to encounter in life isn't there like the man flu and perhaps this is a good time this Father's Day weekend to talk about the impact of a man flu and how, how that for, for a man this is a really 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 challenging life space to get through but how is it for some people they, they make such a big deal over something that seems rather small to anyone looking on. The interview we just saw um, there were some real challenges in that story for Dale and Aaron and Perhaps in some regards that interview underplayed what could have been said. There was some real fear and panic moments in there, that fearing the worst for their son. And how do they come out with their faith continuing to just go up and up and up? I mean, this isn't the first challenge this family has faced this year. We heard an earlier interview a few months ago about how they both lost their job on the same week. and, And then a situation like this, I mean, other people would go, that's it, Lord, I, I give up. If this is how you're going to treat me, then then forget it. Last weekend, um, as we we're getting to the close of the church starting, uh, Tim Weatherall and I had heard uh, Michael Thompson had an incident on the way to church. And so we went out to sort of check how he was going and he has this big smile on his face and, you know, said, so how's the car? You know, because there's, there's you know, the car essentially blew up on his journey to church. And we're wondering what's this big smile about? Like, why isn't he stressing? Why isn't he panicking? And he's kind of like, just had this joy that I'm just here to serve and we'll worry about the car later. It's like, how, how is it that some people respond in such a mature way? And how can I have more of that? That's the question I've got of this church as we look at them tonight, because they're suffering victoriously. That's what I want you to hear. They're suffering victoriously. They don't let the hardship of life dictate their attitude or their response to God within it. So tonight I want us to talk about how to suffer victoriously. And We get this from the latter part of this first chapter in Thessalonians, and I'm happy happy to go on record as saying I think, Paul was shocked. Talked about people being surprising. I think Paul was shocked when Timothy returns from this 1,200 kilometre trip to check on this church and go, they are going amazingly well. I think Paul was shocked. I think Paul expected them to go, oh, no good. You know, they're struggling like a pig in jelly. They are a mess over there. We need to plan an emergency mission to get on over there and help them out because they're really, really not going well. And, and Timothy instead comes back going they're thriving and Paul says how could that be I thought they were being hammered Timothy says yeah they are but their faith isn't they're holding strong to God through it all so how do you get to that how do I get to that how do you get to that what what fuels that kind of mature response in faith well I first want you to see that they found their joy in the gospel and we see that in verses four to six. They found their personal joy in the gospel. If you need a church and you hear that, it probably sounds at best like poetry and at worst just like theological jargon. It doesn't really connect. It's kind of like la, la, la. Just let me know when you finish this point and I'll tune in again. And they found their joy in the gospel. What does that mean? It means this you were loved by God. If that doesn't make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, you don't really get it yet. You are loved by God. We ought never to make God's love some abstract concept, something you know just factual to believe in, just an intellectual theology. It is that, but it's more. It's warming, it's relational, it's embracing. When the New Testament brings forward this theology that we see here of being the beloved of God, that the people hearing this for the first time were shocked because up until now, throughout the Old Testament, whenever anyone's spoken of being the beloved of God, they were a super saint. We're talking Moses, Elijah or Solomon or Abraham, somebody way up there, not ordinary folks. Beloved of God, it says here in verse 4, not only does it say God loves you, it goes on to add, he has chosen you to be his own. God had selected them in love and they understood it. They embraced it. They accepted it. They made it their identity. Some children are unplanned by their earthly parents, yeah. No children are unplanned by their heavenly father. He chooses us all. He selects us in deep Love. It's impossible to embrace that and at the same time hold on to a victim mentality. We just can't. We just can't. This understanding that I am loved and chosen by God feeds my truest identity and when I grab a hold of it, it releases me to be free. I'm no longer a victim. When I was in school in a previous century, there was this game that seemed to be designed to humiliate people, at least that's the way it worked out. I was half decent at sports, so it didn't particularly apply to me, but I always cringed when I saw it unfold. What happened, the way sport would often happen way back then, we're talking a long time ago, was, was two people you know, were, were put on either side, captains if you like, and they were told to select their team, and everybody else had to line up. And this person over here would say, I'll I'll have him. And this person over here would say, I'll have him. And I'll have her. And I'll have her. And so on it would go. But you know what happened? You get down to the dregs. You know, like the last two, three, four that hadn't been selected yet. They were the, the leftovers. Nobody wanted to be them. And they weren't really chosen at all. They were kind of just there at the end and so I guess I'll take Billy if he's left. I'll just I'll take clumsy Charlie. He's the only one left on that side. God doesn't treat people in that way. There's no leftovers in God's family. There's no one kind of at the end of the line who's an afterthought. God chooses us as his people. And that might have been your story at school, but it doesn't have to be a life story. Embracing this... The good news of the gospel releases us to experience deep joy. That a significant other finds me attractive and wants me on his team and wants to spend time with me and wants to befriend me is life-changing. It's life-changing. This is God and this church got it. And that's why they can pursue through this deep suffering that they're currently facing. What else can we learn from these baby believers? Well, verse 9, they avoided the idol trap. They avoided the idol trap. Now, someone will ask, what's all that racket about idols? We don't talk about idols in Australia in 2020, do we? Well, no, we don't consider idols in Australia nowadays, but we certainly combat idols in Australia every day. There's more subtle, we we sometimes think about it as a statue, you know, Buddha-like image in the corner and that's an idol. But my basic description is this, I'll get to what a couple of smart people think in a moment, but here's a starting definition. An idol is anything that takes up space that rightly belongs to God. An idol is anything that takes up space that rightly belongs to God. It can be our sexuality, It can be our music, can be our cars, can be our possessions, can be our appearance. It can be that we're a million-dollar business person and that's really cool, but be careful not to make an idol out of it if that's you. Time out, Jono. How's that remotely concerned to our topic tonight of suffering victoriously? What's idols got to do with it? Well, because it's when we're suffering that idols feel especially attractive it's when we're hard pressed and we're looking for a mood change and we're looking for some kind of a, you know, just a release from the struggle that we're in that, that these idols grow in their appeal. They become very, very real to us. And it's in these moments a decept, deceptic, um, deceiver, rather, the deceiver Satan creeps up and begins to whisper. "Hey, How about you have a look over here? I mean, this God thing's not really working out for you, is it? How about you try this over here? I mean, that will give your life a bit of a lift. A few weeks ago, I spoke to the men here at a men's breakfast about three big temptations in the life of a man. A man, gold, girls, and glory were the three themes that I talked about. Now, for the ladies, you'll have to translate. I don't know how it works for you. Is it men, money, and magnificence? I don't know, I've run out of, <laughs> run out of a third word. I'm lacking creativity there. but. What are these three big temptations in your life? For men, it's often girls, gold and glory, but it's, it's the enemy that twists things that are God given and makes them an idol. See, when we think about girls from the perspective of being a temptation for a man, the underlying desire there is actually intimacy. And that's a God given desire. And, and, it's, and it's supposed to be there. I mean, right back in the beginning, God said, not good that man's alone. And so he created us to be in fellowship and company. And yet that can be perverted. And the idol becomes pornography, if we're not careful, if we're not on guard. Take another example of gold underneath that idol, or that, that uh, temptation rather, is, is an idol that can become greed. If we're not careful, in our desire for security, which again isn't a isn't an evil desire in and of itself, but that security and that wanting that acknowledgement can turn into, to greed and the glory element. I should say is the acknowledgement that we can want recognition, but that the the. the The idol can be pride within that. We can start living out this temptation to become proud and it, it becomes a look at me, look at me, look at me existence instead of a healthy identity in God. Let's not be fooled into thinking we have no idol issues in Australia. We have plenty. One of the reformers said it like this, my heart is a factory of idols. That's a pretty honest admission. Anything that rightly takes up space, it belongs to God. A couple of smart people say it like this. Matt Smethus says an idol is giving something a promotion it doesn't deserve. I like that. I like the definition that is. (laughs) An idol is giving something a promotion it doesn't deserve. Tim Keller says it like this, turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. That's an idol. And it's when I functionally build my life on something other than living Christ. And that word functionally is critical there. Functionally build my life on something other than the living Christ. It's not enough that we believe the right things intellectually. It's when the squeeze of life comes on, what I'm trusting really becomes evidently clear. And whether I turn or not to idols is then tested. It's in terms of suffering and pain that they appear to be a real temptation. But if we take the bait, if we grab a hold of them, if we walk into that lifestyle of following after idols, we we end up in that space that the Old Testament book Ecclesiastes describes so well, where, where the writer ends up saying, meaningless, all of life is meaningless. Why? Because he's got himself full of just idol worship, of chasing after empty things where God's presence does not dwell. So either we turn to dead and false idols or we do what this Thessalonian church, when suffering comes, we hold tight to the true and living God. We hold tight to the true and living God. One final thing I want you to notice in verses 7 to 10, I'm going to reread these as I think about the, the A plus this church got in the area of influencing others, verse 7 says it like this, As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about it the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the true living and true God. And they speak of how you're looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. I want you to notice three times it's mentioned here. Verse eight, they keep telling. The end of verse eight, the beginning of verse nine, they keep talking about your faith. At the beginning of verse 10, they keep speaking. Who's blowing the trumpet? Everybody else is, but them, they don't need to. Their their actions are doing the talking. Their faith is shining. They're living influential lives. Even in the midst of severe suffering, verse 6 at the end tells us they still shine. That's incredible. Their influence is wide. These baby bunch of believers are shining strong for Christ. So there's a lie under here that I think we need to overcome. We need to name and then work towards overcoming today. And it's this. I'm not ready yet to be used by God. I'll get there one day. But right now I need to... I need to do a bit more homework before I would ever be ready for that. You know, because I'll start a faith conversation and I'll probably get asked about dinosaurs or some other scientific question and I'll be clueless and I'll make God look silly and I'll certainly look silly. We need to learn more. Other of us, others of us feel there's a present challenge to overcome. You know, a family issue. When I get my son's behaviour under control, then, then, then I might volunteer in kids ministry. But how could I help help shepherd anyone else's kids when my own son has behavioural issues? He's not a model citizen. When I finish my degree, then I'll be better placed to serve God. All right now, I've just got to focus on study and give my 100% effort to that. And one day. One day, I'll get around to serving God. I'll get around to thinking about others. I understand the truth in all those scenarios. They're all valid. But there comes a day where we must kind of step back and look at it honestly and go, how long has it been since I've served? Are we talking one year, three years, five years? I mean, if ever there was a year... Well, we all have an excuse to pull back in our shell. This is it, yeah. This is it. Two thousand and twenty, the year of the turtle. I mean, pull your head in, and you, we've all got the excuse: a global pandemic. I mean, let's just self-preserve and just think about our own well-being, yeah. We've all got a reason to not be serving, to not be living lives that are influencing others. I'm not speaking to those online who are following medical advice to stay home right now. I mean, but but even in, within that, there's still ways of having an outward look and trying to bless others and thinking of others in the way you go about a day. See, that's where this church should have been. This is a church who should have been doing the turtle, who should have been hidden in the corner with their head pulled in and and just been in self-preservation mode because the suffering we read is intense that they're facing and they're just a bunch of baby believers I mean if they were in the corner hunched up we wouldn't blame them if when Timothy arrived there hiding underneath the the seats in the corner and saying oh you wouldn't believe how tough it's been for us I mean we would get it we would understand it we would give them a pass they're not doing that their face is shining over the place. Their faith has been spoken of in other townships. We need to sometimes I think pull back the curtain on this lie and go maybe I'll never feel ready. Maybe I'll never feel ready to share my faith or to serve God or to live a life of influence. Maybe I'll never feel ready. And maybe I've actually got to just say, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. So as we close out tonight and the music team come back to lead us, I want to pray into that with you tonight. And I want to make our our prayer a prayer of sacrifice. And Lord, sure, I don't feel ready right now, and maybe I'll never feel ready. But maybe right where I am right now, you could use me to live a life of influence if I just made myself available to you. So would you stand as we pray? You know, suffering isn't optional. But in suffering, we can either give up on our faith Or like this church, we can hold on to the joy of our salvation. Suffering isn't optional, but in our suffering, we can give our allegiance to idols. Or we can hold fast to the living Christ, our choice. There's no life in the idols. They promise much and deliver little. Suffering isn't optional, but in suffering, we can put the cue in the rack and pull our head in and decide to just self-protect. Or we can continue to influence others. It's my call. It's your call. It's our call. The word of the Lord to us is this. Suffering isn't optional, but the way we travel through it is. We can suffer as victims. Or we can suffer as victors, we get to choose. So Holy Spirit, we ask tonight that we would find our joy in your salvation. Lord, remind us again that your love is so real. It's demonstrated, it's unchanging. Flows toward us now. We receive it. We ask God and we repent and turn away from the things that we have turned to as substitutes for your presence. Your word calls these idols. Things that take up space that rightly belong to God. We turn away from them tonight. We ask you to cleanse our hearts and our hands afresh. And we ask God that you would enable us to continue to lift up our eyes and encourage and bless and think of others, even when we ourselves don't feel ready. Lord, above all, you want to hear from us. Here am I, Lord. And so together we say that. We're going to close with this song, God, you're so good. And when we get to that part where it says, I'm blessed, I'm whole. I'm under your favour. Would you just really let your spirit sing that out with all your heart and embrace it as your true identity in Christ. God bless you.